Hi, everybody, and welcome to Elections on Tap with your host, Miles Wilburn. Uh, today on the panel, we have Christus Iwanu and Tyler Gardner, uh, as well as myself. And uh, we will be talking about both reapportionment and New Mexico's first special election. So for this first part of, uh, of the podcast, the question that I'm, that I'm posing to my fellow panelists is, so now that it's been a couple of months since uh, reapportionment data has come out, or came out has, has come out, and we've sort of had some time to digest the information. Uh, what are your biggest takeaways and surprises? And so, yeah, I'm gonna op I will open that up to Tyler. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was quite as like shocking as it could have been in terms of, you know, things changing around. I mean, I know there were a lot of states that were at risk of losing a seat that didn't end up losing one um, just barely and so like I really don't think it was that earth shattering um, I mean obviously like the big, big takeaways are probably just you know the rust rust belt not a term I love using but probably the best way to describe to describe it um, losing you know a handful of seats in total I mean Michigan Ohio West Virginia Pennsylvania all lost one um, each which definitely speaks to the fact that, you know, while these states aren't shrinking, obviously they are, you know, growing at a much slower pace than um, a lot of other parts of the country right now. Um, and, you know, would lead me to think that it'll be quite a while before we see another like presidential candidate pop up from this part of the country, just as it sort of loses its national relevance a little more. Um, you know, I would say the biggest, like, I mean, Texas gaining two is definitely big. Just that's a shows how fast they're growing. Um, and as I think we'll talk about a little later, probably has more impact in terms of like redistricting. Um, but, you know, in in total, I just think the data is is pretty interesting to look at. Um, just in terms of seeing where the country's future is in a way, I mean, where where is growing fast and where isn't. I mean, obviously it's not a perfect system. I mean, we know Utah, Idaho, states like that are like growing hugely fast. And yet the way we reapportion seats, they haven't gained anything extra, but even just that data is pretty fascinating, um, you know, to think about where are going to be these, you know, hard fought hot spots in the next 10 or 20 years, right? And they might be from some pretty like unexpected places. Um, I mean, even Montana gaining a seat is like pretty weird just to, to think about. I mean, I don't usually think of it as being some fast growing urbanizing state, but you know, they are <laughs> evidently. Um, and I just think that's, you know, some interesting, interesting data to look at. Um, how about you, Christos? I still think my uh, my biggest takeaway. I want to say I don't understand how Rhode Island kept its second seat 
But at the same time, I know better than to ask questions because I'm sure Gina will come for my kneecaps next. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it it's funny because I I believe just based on you know what what we're kind of looking at discussing here today with reapportionment, you uh you wanted to maybe get into like the political ramifications at least party wise, and I know that's one of those little things where that seat is not swinging to the Republicans. And it's, we, we got a little lucky there as the Democrats got a little lucky there. I'll say that. Uh, the other big one for me was the fact that New York was on, only 89 people away from not losing a seat. And, you know, I, I'll be completely honest. I am nowhere near an expert in New York politics. Uh, but, <laughs> it's it's probably it's I feel like that's probably going to end up working out in the uh, in the Dems' favor as well, you know them losing. What you that mean uh, what you, that? you mean you mean Minnesota, right? No, New York. I thought it was uh, Minnesota uh, was the one I thought that uh, they were both extremely close. Minnesota oh, and okay. New York if, both were if like New York had, if New York had kept its seat, it would have been Minnesota's seat on the chopping block. Okay. Basically, right. that's how close it was. So on one hand there, you know, that we, you know, that, that could be a potential Democratic seat that, you know, now is safe in Minnesota and odds are in New York, they go ahead and they figure out something upstate in order to go ahead and, you know, just draw one of the Republicans out and, you know, then Dems end up happy with that. Otherwise, you know, not too many. I'm upset Ohio lost one because there were different sources saying like, oh, for sure we're losing one. Others saying we may not. We lost one. It's tough. We'll deal with it. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've got the list of states pulled up here. I mean, otherwise, yeah, I agree with what Tyler said, how especially, you know, in the Midwest, it shows that we're bleeding population kind of not, not even severely, but it, it's enough where you know, of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven states that, you know, um, ended up losing a seat, one, two, three, four, I'll count West Virginia, five, you know, or decently Midwestern, or as he said, in the Rust Belt. Uh, again, i not a huge fan of the term e- either, but it's it, it's what's used. Uh, so it, 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 ju- it does really show, you know, for lack of a better term, a loss of clout uh <laughs> among uh you know uh, among the midwest and you know, it, I, I don't know i uh i thought i'd be wording this better <laughs> uh i'm interested to see to see what happens especially though in the new uh uh in in the new second congressional district up in montana because it's one of those things where you know democrats have gotten kind of close there in the past few years statewide uh, at the congressional level. You know, Bullock was able to win re-election as recently as 2016. Tester was able to win re-election as recently as 2018. I have no doubt that the right candidate could certainly, you know, pick up that seat for the Democrats. But it's going to be interesting to see who that, you know, who that ideal Democrat is. Uh, Otherwise, you know, yeah, it's the same sort of rapidly growing states. Uh, you, you got Texas, Florida, uh, North Carolina. I'm, I was surprised Oregon was picking up a seat. I didn't realize that until I was re-looking at this. For whatever reason, I thought they were losing one. But 
yeah, I guess that's my very rambly two cents. But while we're while we're kind of on this, I guess I would like to ask you guys like what you think of the way that we, you know, apportion congressional mm-hmm. seats in terms of a process. Because you know, the thing that stands out to me, kind of always looking at this, is that if I'm not mistaken, Mississippi is the only state on this map that actively like lost population since 2010 you know most are there are a lot obviously that are fairly stagnant right like um and then you have a ton that are growing but you know the fact you have one state that actively is like has lost a percentage of its population and yet is a state that hasn't lost any representatives um I think speaks to just kind of the oddity of the system and the fact that our numbers are unchanging, right? That we don't expand the house every however many years or, you know, because it it's so strange to look at a state like California, which is, you know, by far, you know, the most populated state gaining population pretty healthily and then is losing a seat, right? And like, you know, even looking at something like um, Ohio, which right the last 10 years has actually grown a little bit, you know, slower rate than other ones, but to lose a seat, like, it just seems strange to me that our system is based upon, in a sense, which states are growing disproportionate to other states is a, is a, seems a weird way to decide where our representation goes. Um, and I'm curious, I guess, what you guys think of like our system in general and like, would you like to see the house expanded at some point? Do we have enough seats? You know, is it something that every however many years we should expand or or have fit the smallest common denominator kind of deal? Yeah, so just sort of briefly, I, I think that that, is, <laughs> that might be uh, something for another discussion um, entirely. Uh, which we could get into in the future, but uh, I do I, I do have some thoughts. Um, so personally, I think that uh, well, I, I should say this all stems back from the Apportionment Act of 1929, which set the number of, of House House Representatives, and that has not changed since 1929. I really I actually kind of learned about this from uh, a buddy of mine um, from grad school. And he introduced me to the, the Apportionment Act of, of 1929. And it's so, it's interesting that it hasn't changed. And you look, you compare that to say uh, England's or the, the UK's House of Lords, which has like 900 something members um, or and, and, and any other, you know, parliament, parliamentary system, you know, they, they have, a lot of members. So I personally think that the house should expand. And, and that's just that that's just my my personal my personal opinion because you know it, it needs to 435 representatives is just it's not enough. Um now again I don't know how the census uh you know figures all this stuff out and like the sort of the I don't know the the, the minutia with which it does that but you know, I, I think that there's there's an argument for reapportionment reform, so to speak. 
Um, I don't know, Christos, if you have anything more to add to that. I mean, I think we absolutely need to go ahead and, you know, expand the house. It's one of those things where I'm, it, it's essentially a given, you know, if you look at it where it's like when the founders, you know, when, that, when our country was created, each house member, they only had like a few 10,000 people they're each representing. And it's been closer to 700,000. I believe after the latest census, it's grown closer to 800,000. So it, it's one of those things where it's the easiest thing to do would just be the Wyoming rule, you know, make sure everybody gets the same uh, for every, you know, Wyoming there is, everybody gets one representative, smallest state, just set at the bench line for the average congressional district. I think that makes sense. Uh, God, I remember I read a really good paper about this uh, a few months ago. I think it was from Fordham University Law School. Uh, I'll try and find it, send it to you guys later. But there's another interesting one where it's there's like a cube root rule and a bunch of political scientists kind of agreed like, oh, hey, that's the best thing to do. Where basically you look at the population of, of a country, you find the cube root of that number. And apparently that's one of the most like representative ways to go ahead and allocate. So, you know, that would mean for every X amount of Americans, one representative it's a little more convoluted it involves a little bit more math which is probably why i don't remember it <laughs> but and i i think otherwise reapportionment it is very confusing because you know like you said tyler we picked up ohio we have a larger population than we did a decade ago but just because we haven't grown as fast as some other you know as some other states all of a sudden we're losing a congressional seat and it's very I don't know. It's one of those things where it's convoluted, but the, at the same time, it's it, it it's a part of the system we're in, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think not to get into this whole thing right now, but I mean, I do think there is a valid concern of like, you definitely need a cap at some point, right? Like, because, but it's finding what that number, what that magic number is, because you need a small enough group of people that you can kind of work with, right? Like if you start getting into, say we had 5,000 representatives, then you're, you know, I imagine it would be kind of a nightmare to write bills, to pass bills, to have people make any sort of, you know, career gains and, and gain prominence. Um, but at the same time, yeah, we're stuck with this number that just seems, you know, you need an arbitrary ending point, but this seems to be the wrong arbitrary ending point is, is probably the best way to word it. Um, and yeah, the Wyoming rule definitely seems like the most baseline, simple thing for people to be able to understand, right? Like whatever the smallest U.S. state is that gets, you know, gets one house seat. And then that's the, the base that we set. We set the number of seats at. I mean, it, it wouldn't be perfect, but it definitely seems to at least make more sense to, to more people, um, which I think is valuable in how a democracy is run, right? That, that people can kind of understand, understand how it works. Um, yeah. But yeah. That yeah. Just... For, for, for sure. Um, <clears throat> moving on, we kind of briefly touched on this, but moving on to uh, my last question. At this time, does reapportionment benefit one party over the other right now so as it as it sits or do you think that it's too early for us to see right now 
And uh, I'll go to uh, Tyler for that. I mean, I think it's, listen, it benefits reapportion. I mean, in general, redistricting right now is going to be benefit Republicans because it's just this advantage they've had for some time now. I mean, it benefited them in 2010. It's going to benefit them again in general. You know, specifically the reapportionment side of things, I think is a mixed bag and will kind of, will really remain to be seen if, if the changes in these, how many states is it, you know, 10 or so states is a, is a net gain for either party. I mean, you know, take something like California losing a seat, like in theory, I would say that's probably good for Democrats because you just find a way to merge into Republicans and then draw somebody out, chip away here and there. But because of their independent commission, you know, it's a little hard to tell how that will fall. You know, will they go for some sort of compactness and thus, you know, take out something in Orange County? I mean, you know, there's a lot of mixed bags like that. I mean, Montana is sort of the same way where like in my head, it makes sense that it would benefit Democrats, right? With a sort of Eastern seat and a Western seat that's maybe slightly Trump voted, but the right Democrat could pretty easily win that. But will it be drawn? You know, it's so hard to, to tell some of these things. Like the things I am confident in are that Texas and Florida are gonna at least for the time being, be net negatives for us. Um, those are just going to get drawn horribly, you know, because of how Republican controlled those states are. Those are going to be horrible lines that draw us out and draw in some really wacky Republican districts. Um, and again, the Midwest is kind of a mixed bag too, in terms of, you know, Ohio losing one, I think in theory is probably just one less Republican um but who knows right i mean you really never know what the ohio <laughs> republican party is going to try and do it at all opportunities west virginia obviously hurts republicans um michigan is kind of a mixed bag i mean if you just look at it from the states here i would say it's probably gonna be almost a break-even situation maybe a slight benefit to one party or the other based on, you know, how California and New York kind of get done and how bad Texas gets like, but I, I do think that the reapportionment side of things is pretty stable, you know, um, obviously the much bigger question is what redistricting is going to look like and what an absolute nightmare that's going to be. Um, which again, whole separate conversation, but probably somewhere in the realm of what 2010 looked like, you know, hard to say if it'll be much better or much worse than that, but that's my two cents. How about you, Christos? I don't know. It, I, I agree. It's also really hard to say. It's also very early. It, it's going to be completely dependent on what happens with the drawing of the district, you know, because um. I'm of the belief that gerrymandering is bad, but also as a partisan hack, I'll, I'll look past a little bit of it when Democrats do it, which, you know, isn't good. <laughs> Ideally, what HR1 would pass, 
and I believe for I can't remember if the redistricting I think that ends up popping in a little bit down the line but you know either way I don't know I God, I really had, I had like something good to say about this in my head and just completely out, of course, once I opened my mouth. It's, yeah, it's dependent on redistricting. I think overall it'll probably, you know, work itself out to be about where it is now. Uh, I, I think, again, for Dems, the big things are probably that second Montana, uh, that second Montana seat, uh, keeping Rhode Island's second seat and the loss of uh, New York's one seat, I think, those are all going to, you know, be okay. Illinois probably too. What, you know, knowing how vicious the party is there will probably work out okay for the Democrats. Otherwise, yeah, Texas, Florida, those are good uh, handoffs to the GOP. Uh, I think the Oregon seat will probably be good for Dems, but otherwise, again, it's, it's all very up in the air and very early out. And, you know, in an ideal world, it would all be, you know, pretty equal and it all work out and if anything wasn't working out state supreme courts would shut those down but we do not live in a fair and equal world so what i do think is worth noting about texas gaining too is i do think it really increases the potential of like a really bad dummy mander for republicans in like five or six years um something that i could see happening and may or may not but because like the Rio Grande Valley voted a lot more for Trump this time than than expected um, and is one of these things that like is a real wait and see. I could see the party kind of jumping a gun on, on that and using the the RGV to like bolster some Republican districts, you know, to like keep them keep them in that range like, oh, well, they voted for Trump by, you know, they really swung right like that's going to continue and if that turns out to just be kind of a weird yearly blip right like we don't really know if that's a trend that's here to stick or just a, a weird shift like i could see a situation where some districts that are you know pulling from some of the bigger cities or are, are trying to pull a little bit from the rgv to like shore up some republicans now and that ends up backfiring or or just the way that you know, you split Austin so many different ways and then Austin keeps growing and, you know, San Antonio keeps growing. Like Texas will probably look very bad for Democrats for a couple of years on the House side, but if they're not extremely careful, like for them to avoid some really bad dummy manders, they'd have to like willingly decide to not take as many seats right away, which I'm not sure the Republican Party has that level of restraint, because if they did, they could probably save themselves a few seats down the line if they were like, OK, let's give Democrats two more. And then we won't get bitten in the ass quite so much. But I just don't see that level of restraint coming out of any state GOP party right now. <laughs> like, I just don't see that happening. Um, yeah. So something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, I know for sure. Uh, and I think I agree with, uh, with with both of what you guys have said. Um, and to, to add on it, I think, and, and I think this is sort of to, to build on my own uh, big takeaways from 
uh, from reapportionment. Uh, I think, so first off, my, my, my takeaway from, or my, my biggest takeaway from the, from reapportionment, I think was uh, the, uh, the expectations versus the, the, what actually happened. So for instance, both Florida and Texas were expected to get uh, two and three seats respectively, but they wound up getting two and one seat. And that is, and I, I personally believe that that is because of the, the citizenship question that wasn't on the, the census um, that, that was sent out, but it, you know, there was still so much fear in uh, Latino, Latinx communities. Um, and that, and, and what's, what I find so personally interesting about that is that in 2020, like we've talked about before on, uh, on this podcast, we saw such a shift in various Latin communities towards Trump and towards Republicans. Now, I, I don't, I don't know the, the the down ballot data for that, but we saw at least a shift towards Trump, and I think that reapportionment hurt, hurts Republicans in that way. Um, now, again, we don't know. Uh, we don't know a lot, and in 2020, the, the Hispanics and, and, and Latinos might revert back in 20, 20, in 2022, but I think that that's something to at least think about. Is there anything else that any of you guys would like to say? I think we just about covered it. All right. Welcome back to Elections on Tap. And for the second part of this episode, we'll be looking at the New Mexico first special election. So the question that I would like to ask uh, our two panelists is, with the, improve, uh, sorry, with the important caveat that we shouldn't extrapolate too much about future midterms, um, i.e. I. 2020, uh, from, a, from one special election, what insights about voting trends can we glean from Stansbury's 24.5% win in New Mexico one? And I'll go to Christos first. Dems are screwed. Republicans are winning back the house. They're winning. They're winning more seats in the Senate that are up and Donald Trump will be president again for at least four more terms. Donald Trump's going to be president tomorrow. What are you talking about, Chris? That's not two <laughs> years from he'll now. Be reinst- Wait, no, I thought it was. I thought it was August. August, you're right. Yeah. Little did we all know he's being reinstated being in re- that New Mexico congressional district. Not even as president. He's going back. He's going. He's going to the House. <laughs> what do you think that extra Florida seat's going to do, Christos? You... Oh, Look at the Mar-a-Lago seat right there. <laughs> God, I cannot wait for U.S. Representative Donald John Trump. It's going to be the smallest House district by a mile. It's going to be 286 people that are right on the Mar-a-Lago property. It's going to be really small. Oh, Lord. I, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't wait to derail that one. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, in all seriousness, I, I mean, it looks good. If we're not extrapolating too much, she outran Biden in the district. The... Uh, the opponent in the district. Oh God! I, what was his name again? Anybody remember? 
Uh, the Republican Morris, I think has. I think that's how you pronounce it. Morris, or is it Morris? Morris. Okay. I, some, some, either that or Morris. I don't know. Either way, she beat the Republican in his own district, which was interesting to me. It was like bare. It was barely, but it was. But it was by a point or two. Uh, I mean, otherwise, you know, looks good. It, it was one of those things where if you look back at all the, you know, post 2016 races, there were times where, you know, supposedly safe seats, all of a sudden, you know, a Dems only losing by, you know, 10 points when in a regular, you know, election, they'd be losing by like 20 something. So I don't know. I, you know, I, it's a good sign, but at the same time, I agree. We can't read too much into this. You know, we can't sit here and say, oh, well, because this happened, you know, very clearly Washington's flipping to the, uh, the Republicans now, you know, it, which is great too. Cause that's what everybody does online. They take, they, they look at it and they go real deep into it. And at the same time, I think a lot of it is just boredom. If I'm being completely honest, cause we've got this coming up, you know, the only other like big elections we've got, you know, New York, uh, mayoral, then we've Virginia. got, what was that? Uh, Virginia, Virginia primary. And then those Ohio uh, Ohio primaries. So it's one of those things where we're in a bit of a drought, and this was like the first, you know, general that we could look at. And I don't know. Again, it, it looks good, but for all we know, that's just because she ran a good campaign. You know, for all we, she had good outreach. It, it's one of those things where we can't. Again, we can't read too much into it. But as a partisan hack, I'm happy. So. <laughs> How about you, Tyler? I think there's like, yeah, it's far, it's far out. We're two years out. I think there are a few things that we can pull from this, though. One is that a lot of the time, people just don't can't predict the future because, on the one end, you had a lot of you know, Republican pundits thinking that this was going to be a super close race or that you know Stansbury would lose, and on the other hand, if you recall when Stansbury Barry got the nomination there was a lot of talk about the chance of her like really underperforming uh biden not just by republicans but particularly because the district is very heavily hispanic and stansbury as opposed to um the last representative uh well holland who is um native american but the fact that stansbury is a white lady uh there was definitely a lot of talk that that could at least have her underperform. Um, and at least to me, that was surprising that she didn't, um, that, you know, her ancestry didn't really change much about that race. And in fact, she overperformed Biden and slightly overperformed um, Holland in that seat from, from 20. Um, but so I think first off is like, it's hard to tell how good a candidate is, right? Like you just don't know sometimes who a candidate, when a candidate's going to be really strong and especially in what a race is going to look like. Um, so that was surprising to me. But second, I mean, just the fact that she actively overperformed 2020 was legitimately surprising. Um, and I think the thing that we have to put it in context with is that Texas special from a month or two ago, um, where a very similar thing happened and you had a slight Republican overperformance in a Republican one seat in 2020. And I think that that could point to one of two things. It's either since November, the country has gotten even more partisan um, somehow. And like 
these seats are just going to keep kind of drifting apart. Um, or it points more to like who's engaged in each seat right now, like in each race. Um, and that it's like the same people from November are still interested, right? Maybe it's less of them, but like proportionally, it's, it's the same people getting out and voting with like some marginal differences that that change the percentages a little bit, which you know, it's so early, it's hard to say what that means right now. That could fade away in a month and then everything changes or six months. I mean, we don't know. But I, I do think it would make me feel on the presidential side and on the Senate side, better to be a Democrat. Because, you, you know, if you're Biden, if you're maybe Harris or whoever might run in, in 24, you're thinking, hey, it's been, you know, six, well, you know, eight months since I won. And the environment seems very similar. And like, that would be good. <laughs> that would be great for you, right? Like, in the Senate, this is the Senate that we flipped, we took majority in, like, that is fine for right now. If you're the, if you're in the House, I do think it might be might warrant a little more caution, just because our majority is so slim, that a similar environment to November 2020 post redistricting does not inherently mean the same results. Um, so if say somehow two years from now, it's the exact right, like the same people are excited, the same people are voting, percentages are the same where they were, like it does kind of generally appear right now. That could very easily be a Republican House with the right redistricting moves. Um, and so, again, I don't think it's worth really extrapolating anything this early, but I do think it's, at least from a very far out view, looks good for Democrats, right? But is always, always worth being cautious because as a Democrat, you need to understand that the universe is just constantly going to screw you over at every possible opportunity. <laughs> it could look great. Stansberry could have won by 60% and she will probably lose in 2022 because that is what the universe does to, to us bleeding heart liberals that are, are constantly hopeful and will just see the universe tear us to shreds every time. That's my... <laughs> That's my soapbox. I hope I made a point there. <laughs> I used to, I used to describe my political ideology. I guess I still would. Uh, I just haven't done it recently. As a cynical Democrat, and I think you just really put that perfectly, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just only there's only so many times you can have the peak hopefulness just absolutely cry every again every opportunity. I mean, I even think back to John Ossoff and and Warnock winning those Senate races, right? And you're on that high of highs and that next day you're ready to just celebrate and just, hell yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna party all day. Oh, cool, giant insurrection at the Capitol. I mean, every, even the minor things you're looking forward to as, Demo as a Democrat, just get, just get ruined. Just the yeah. universe is, is constantly laughing at you. Oh, you thought you were gonna have a good time? No, I don't know. Nope, nope. nope. Yep. No, oh, Biden, Biden's up by two in Ohio in the polls. Oh, okay, here we go.
crashed. <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, I, I think that I would agree. And to sort of to, to, to echo the fact that, uh, that we shouldn't extrapolate much, you know, there, there, there's that old, there, there's that sort of semi-old adage uh, about polls um, during, um, during general elections. And it's, you know, once a poll, you know, comes out that has a candidate winning by 15 points or whatever, you know, you throw it in the average. I think that you can, you can use that same adage to, uh, to, to something like a special election, kind of throw it in the average and, and, and not extra, extrapolate much. Well, I'm, I mean, even think of 2018 to 2020, right? Like if, if the only thing you were basing what you thought 2020 was going to play out like was on 2018, your impressions of what that election would look like would have been very different from how it actually played out, right? Like Texas was super close. Florida was extremely close. You know, Sherrod Brown hung on in Ohio by a pretty healthy margin. Like there were a lot of things that you would have just gotten wrong if like you were just basing it on, on one election. Um, and even you know, many elections within one election. So, you know, we're still that far out. Who knows? Pandemic two, electric boogaloo mm -hmm. could happen. I mean, any, you really just have no idea. But I also don't think it's worth just totally dismissing, right? Because I will say I was genuinely surprised that she had an overperformance from the 2020 baseline like that I think is legitimately surprising and speaks to probably her as a candidate and the organizing efforts um but also that like the environment is pretty stable right now from November um and obviously yeah. that could change yeah absolutely I agree and um sort of build off what, what I'm saying uh a, a little bit earlier is I think that it was my my takeaway is that those who came out or those who voted for Democrats in 2020 are still energized. They're still they still want to, to, to vote in Democratic candidates. And I think that that's important if you, when you compare to 2017 and post Trump. Uh, or post Trump, the post Trump election, there at least from what I remember, there was a lot, and this is really when I kind of started uh, really focusing more uh, on elections and electoral politics, what have you. And in 2017, there was a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of Democrats underperformed, uh, and we're not seeing that in 2021. So I think that. One thing that, 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 you, that you might be able to say is that Trump and Trumpism has energized the Democratic Party in a way that we haven't seen since possibly, uh, I know, very, very bold take here, possibly 08, and, or at the very least 12. Um, and we're still seeing sort of the fruits of that. Um, so well, that, and I think my takeaway to connect to that same point, the thing that remains to be seen and we still don't have a great grasp on is does Trumpism work without Trump? Yeah. And does that sustain the kind of like anti-Trumpism fervor that's really energized Democrats the last couple of years? It's 
those are the big questions. And I think we'll really take a midterm and probably through 2024 to like really get an answer to that. Um, And who knows, maybe Trump will run again. What, who am I getting? So we probably won't get an answer for eight years or something. Um, But, (laughs) but I do think that's those two things combined, right? That like Democrats are still energized by, by Trump and his actions and his rhetoric and how is the Republican Party going to respond when Trump isn't the person running anymore? Right. Or even really getting involved. I mean, it remains to be seen how much he's going to be like actively out there for people in, in 22. I mean, who knows? Maybe he's going to start enjoying retirement, right? I mean, you don't, he could do anything. He could be out there campaigning every day for people, or he could be, you know, just golfing and writing on his defunct blog. Um, who knows? <laughs> right, 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 exactly. You really just turned into generic old man now. It's kind of funny. Writing on a blog nobody listens to. Just going golfing. Otherwise, you know. Yeah. Literally the meme, uh, old man yells at cloud. <laughs> yeah. Do you think they told him that they, that they shut his blog down or do you think he's still writing on it? Just the word document they have open on his computer now we change what the blog looks like this is how it looks now just right in there it's like that one uh episode of the office where creed breton they tell him he has a blog and it's literally just a word document he's writing literally just that yeah it's just that and when you're done just submit it you highlight it all and then press the delete button and that'll send it into the blog that'll get it (laughs) yeah all right. Well, I, I think with that, um, uh, uh, this episode is, is, is uh, finished. Um, but I would like to thank both the panelists uh, that joined today, tonight. Um, I think we had a really, actually a really pretty good sort of more intimate discussion uh, than, we ha- than we've had in, in, in episodes past. Um, but yeah, so thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elections on Tap. If you like us, you can subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can, please leave us a rating as it helps us reach more people.